The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop searching for a needle in Brian Randall's hair and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 359 with guest Brian Randall, recorded live Tuesday, July 1st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who is a virtual machine, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. Good morning. How are you? I am well, and you? I am doing awesome. It's just a beautiful day, having a great summer. What can I say? Yeah, we're back in the saddle recording shows the old-fashioned way after the craziness of Tech Ed. Yeah. Well, let's jump right into Better Know Framework, shall we? All right, what do you got? Well, as, as uh, people may or may not know, Better Know Framework is a, a section that we've been doing on the show for quite a while now where we just highlight and shine a little bit of light on some aspect of the .NET Framework that you may or may not know about so that you can um, investigate that. And over time, if you're listening to the show twice a week or, God forbid, you're listening to multiple shows every week, then, uh, you know, this stuff seeps in by osmosis. You'll get smart. Right. So today I'm going to talk about the context-bound object. Oh, okay. Context-bound object class really was uh, a popular topic in the heyday of remoting. Because what it is, is it's a it's a special object. The downside of it is that you have to inherit from it. So if you already have base classes, uh, you you have to put this early down in your in your hierarchy. So it has to be your your base class right. somewhere. Something has to inherit from it. And uh, but but it gives you some really cool uh, features, especially for remoting. But one cool feature, um, I just saw a blog post about somebody using it to do aspect-oriented programming. Oh, really? Because aspect-oriented programming essentially is making uh, intercepting method calls and doing something either before or after those method calls. Right. Yeah, to to clean up stuff and to take it out of your field of uh, experience. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I'm saying. So. So, uh, but I think a really good use for the context-bound object is synchronization. And this is something Javal Lowy has been written about uh, over the years quite a bit. You can just, by using an attribute on this object, make it completely thread safe. In other words, anytime your thread access, or any thread accesses this object, it, it essentially creates a lock around it. So, so it's sort of a natural mutex. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to do manual locking. It's just okay. automatically locked. Now, the, it's it's bad because you you have the overhead, right? And you may not want to lock every call. Yeah, to it. It's, you may and wanna, it's inherently serial, so you're going to have scaling challenges. That's right. And you're going to, it, it may be a problem. Um, you might want to create a lock around a block of code that accesses it uh, all at one time uh, instead of having the granularity of 
uh, a lock every time you access it. But it is an interesting class to get to know, the context-bound object class. There you go. Awesome. So who's talking to us today? Oh, here, let me read you this email to you. Hey, Richard and Carl, regarding your show 341 with Brian Peak on the topic of 64-bit computing, I have recently encountered a situation that you guys described during the show. I currently run a Lenovo T61P with 4 gigs of RAM and 4 more on ReadyBoost, so I opted for Vista 64-bit. I was recently writing some code that referenced a DLL from SQL Server 2008 reporting services. After compiling and executing the code, I kept getting a fatal execution engine error with a very generic message as follows. Now, he gave me the full message, which is full of hex values and stuff, but let me pull out the key points of this message. Obviously, the top line, which is, the runtime has encountered a fatal error. Thanks for that. This error may be a bug in the CLR or in the unsafe or unverifiable portions of the user code. Common sources of this bug include user marshalling errors for com interop or pinvoke, which may corrupt the stack. Wow. And then the email goes on. I was thrown for a loop because it's not every day you see an error admitting that there may be a bug in the CLR. After digging around some, I found that some posts on the MSDN forums and several other sites that led me to believe that it was a compatibility issue with the instruction set. I then realized that the SQL Server 2008 version I was working with was an x86, that's the 32-bit, not x64, and that the assembly I was referencing must have been compiled with the x86 compiler option. I then proceeded to set that same option on my project and rebuild it, and it ran perfectly. Now I understand the reason for the error, but the error message could have been a little more helpful in indicating the CPU target mismatch. So, I mean, to his point, he was in the compile any mode, right, as we ter- mm-hmm. learned from Brian Peake, which meant it tried to run in 64-bit, and then it was referencing a 32-bit ah. only assembly, and boom, you were dead. Ah. After listening to the show, it just confirmed my suspicions, and it gave me a better insight into what was going on, so thanks. And that's from Thiago Silva. Awesome. Thanks, Thiago. Good yeah. to talk to you about that. And it's great to see that we really hit some hot spots on that 64-bit computing discussion. Well, that it, it seems like, um, I don't know, not a lot of people think about that. You know, 64-bit, 32-bit. Microsoft sort of blurs the lines a lot, and uh, we don't necessarily think about that all that much. So I, I, was, I, was, I was happy to have that discussion, personally. Absolutely. So uh, what else is going on? I know uh, the guys at Infusion are still hiring .NET Rocks uh, listeners away. Uh, he's got about 15 of them now. Wow. 15 listeners. The The idea is that uh, if you want to go to New York City and live there and work there for a year, they will fly you out there. They'll move you. They will pay for an apartment. You will live rent-free in Manhattan for, for a year. A year. And you get a nice New York City salary on top of that. So uh, it's kind of a good deal yeah. if you're young and energetic and want to travel. Didn't we have a few couples that took this on as well, just that's wanted right. to try something new? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're mobile, let's put it that way. Forget about young and energetic. If you're Willing mobile. Willing to relocate. Yeah. So uh, we have the whole details on a blog post at shrinkster.com slash KH6, and you can read all about it there. So, uh, Richard, our friend Brian Randall is waiting in the wings. Awesome. And he's been on the show a couple of times before. He, uh, he's an employee at, uh, or is he a partner? Are you a partner? I'm a partner. He's a partner at MCW Technologies, and he's also a VSTS MVP, uh, author, speaker, hunter, gatherer, man of big hair, cousin to Sasquatch. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, I have to start changing my bio because that sounds really good, Carl. I like the way you, you do like that. You like that? Man. Yeah, hunter yep. gatherer. I was I was just down in Southern California too, and and with my wife no less, and I and we were somehow the topic of Brian Randall came up, and this is a man who has an M5, a BMW M5, and uses it. Yeah. <laughs> the the experience of riding with Brian Randall will chill you to your bones. So, do you like to race cars? Um, yes. If I had more time and less children, I would uh, probably do it. Oh, yeah, we're just talking about his commute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're just talking about my commute. I do like to get on the track, but, uh, you know, occasionally I like to get on the freeway fast and occasionally need to pass people. So when you have 507 brake horsepower and a V10, you know, it works well. <laughs> so I did a class I did a class once and I had a race car driver in the class. Cool. And, and it was time to go to lunch. He said, I'll, I'll drive. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I got in his car and and it was it was really an experience. I mean... 
acceleration extreme, braking extreme, turning extreme. I mean, just everything was done so over the top. And I said, man, how do you, how do you stop like that so fast? He's like, oh man, it's all in the tires. Got to get these, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You got some tires that were like uh, soft. And so magical. they grabbed the road. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, absolutely. It just, well, it depends. You know, you, soft tires are good in dry conditions. Um, not so good in wet conditions. So yeah. my th- thing is I took a driving school when I got my car, plus I've done the NASCAR experience at the the big ovals. Definitely those driving schools make a huge difference, but you really realize even going to the oval, when you're doing 150, 170 miles an hour, um, it, it's, 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 you're going fast, so it definitely helps to have some skill. Mm, okay. Things happen fast. Absolutely. So what the heck are we talking about today, .NET-wise? Every time that Brian comes on the show, we talk virtualization, although it's been a couple of years now. It's been a while. It's yeah. Been at least, I think, two, right? Literally two <laughs> years, and the last time was like June of 2006. Well, it's good to be back. There's yeah, lots to talk I, about, I feel almost embarrassed. Like, we should be checking in more often here, but uh, virtualization's had some big changes in the past couple of years. So the last time we talked about virtualization, Hyper-V was still in the planning stages. And now it, it, I guess it's, it's just come out. That is correct. It uh, shipped last week. So what is that? Well, so let's actually back up a little and just refresh everybody's memory. You know, when we were last on the show, Microsoft's virtualization stack was made up of two products: Virtual PC for the client, and Virtual Server for you guessed it, the server. Um, both products uh, at this point have been made free. Microsoft made some updates, and in fact. If you're currently using them, you should be aware that there was an update released May 15th, both for Virtual PC and Virtual Server. The important thing about them is that they have new additions, and for one of the first times in recent memory, the edition version is the same. Now, remember, the additions are what you install in your guest machine so that it performs better and behaves well, and you get nice mouse integration, all that good stuff. So that's been updated, and the key thing, reason you need this is because Virtual PC 2007 SP1 and the Virtual Server update to 2005 R2 SP1, don't get me started on names, um, support Vista SP1 both as a host and a guest, as well as they support Windows Server 2008 as a guest and a host. Cool. So really critical you get those because you can have some really negative performance issues, particularly if you have Vista in a VM without the most current um, additions. In fact, I helped uh, an MVP before TechEd get her virtual machine going correctly just by upgrading to Virtual PC 2007 SP1. So those are pretty mandatory. But that's that's kind of old news, right? The sexy stuff is Hyper-V. So does Arrow now work in the host, in the guest operating system? No, that's still an issue with the video driver. Now you can fake Arrow in the in the guest. So you can get Arrow to work inside the guest by using remote desktop from an Arrow-enabled host. So if you're running Vista on the host, you can use RDP to fake it. But the problem is the video driver that Microsoft has, and basically the emulated video card, is an old S3 video card. It doesn't have the horsepower. And when you're thinking about investments and effort, Microsoft probably has other things to work on, like, oh, USB support would be great before they spend time on that. What is it about USB support that is so resisted? Because last time I looked, other products had USB support? You know, I have never gotten a good answer. I know it's, it's, a, it's a point of contention with a lot of people, internal and external to Microsoft, but it just hasn't made the priority stack. Um, they've been focusing their major virtualization resources on Hyper-V, and USB was not a priority for a server-based product. So maybe the next major release of the client virtualization stack will see it, but Microsoft's made no... No point of saying, yes, it's coming anytime soon. Um, and they generally try and find workarounds, which for a lot of things you can work around it. But for some scenarios, you're really going to have to go to the competition. And that's so, just a fact of life. So let's just clarify what the problem is, because I'm not sure I understand. You're saying no USB support? Right. So what people want to do is, you know, if you have a real machine, you plug, plug in a USB hard drive. You plug in a mm-hmm. webcam. It gets detected by the host OS, and you can use it. Mm-hmm. Use it. Yeah. Well, you don't get that effect in a guest virtual machine. So if you plug in a webcam, virtual PC or virtual server and Hyper-V will not see it. Whereas if you have, say, oh, that other desktop product called uh, VMware, um, you use their latest release version 6.0 on the PC. If you have the focus and you plug in a webcam, 
It will detect it, and you can use it within the guest machine. Well, wait a minute. I n- oh man, I swear I'm, I'm maybe I was using VMware, but I swear I got that working. No, if, if you did, I I'd guess, like to know I guess what, not. What, what you were smoking. I must have been VMware. It, yeah. it must have been VMware. So, so yeah, so that's a that's still a big issue, and that's a uh, huge issue. Um. Well, you know, the flip side is I rarely need it, but occasionally I have, and I've kind of had to, you know, grumble and find workarounds. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. But it's that that, a, just that clumsiness of I have a, a a thumb drive with some stuff on it. I want my VM, and I have to copy it to the host system before I can copy it to the guest system. Exactly. Yeah, you have to address it. Like a, a drive, you have to address it as a network drive, or you can use, if you have VPC, you can use uh, folder sharing. Um, so, yeah, it does present issues, and especially when you get to the more you know, consumer scenarios or when you're like to sandbox situations or test things out, you know, really doesn't provide a, a mechanism for you. So they've got work to do there. Have you uh, talked so, to the team about that? What do they say? Is there a particular challenge because of the architecture or is it just like not on their radar? Just, what? There's there's no official comment other than we know it's there. It's just, it's on the list, but it hasn't made the priority stack. Wow. Yeah. Interesting because I think of the competition between uh, Microsoft and VMware, and you know, also other virtualization stacks out there. We have Zen. Uh, we have all the stuff going on the Mac OS. Parallels. Um, uh, yeah, Parallels, and they have, even have a Windows version. Um, the team is is in a kind. It reminds me of, of older teams at Microsoft when they were very non-transparent. The the virtualization team is very much on a need to know basis. So anything I've heard has always been very, you know, we know, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, it's really, that's all they've said. Whereas you talk to some other teams, they might tell you what they're planning for three releases. This team is very close to the chest. They, uh, they tell you what they need to know, and basically they tend to tell you things they're going to make happen. For example, Hyper-V RTM'd last week, which was early based upon their estimates. They said 180 days from Windows Server 2008 shipping. They got it out early. So, you know, take that for what it is. Sometimes less is more. But the USB support, it does rub some people the wrong way, and that's why there's luckily competition. So let's talk about Hyper-V. What is it, why is it so cool? Hyper-V is Microsoft's next-generation virtualization stack. And what they've tried to do is raise the bar and basically compete against VMware at the highest level, specifically VMware's ESX server. So let me cover some of the big what's hot in Hyper-V and why people are going to care. Um, number one, 60, 64-bit guest support. Up until this point, you could only run 32-bit guests in virtual PC and virtual server. What that means, then, is you get access to things like, oh, how about more RAM? Your virtual PC, virtual server VMs are limited to about 3.6 gigabytes of RAM. On Hyper-V, VMs can have up to 64 gigs of RAM. Wow. We have multiple processor support for guests. Depending upon the guest operating system, you can get up to four virtual processors in your guest. Two big things is perf and scalability. Microsoft is you know, going to be, of course, trumpeting all the numbers. One of the big things that came out last week was QLogic, a company that makes um, networking and storage products. They have a fiber channel product that they did some testing, and they were able to get 90% effective performance out of virtual machines. So basically only a 10% degradation when running in Hyper-V over native hardware. And that's always been the big thing with virtualization is how much overhead are we incurring in the system to have this isolation? Exactly. Right. Hyper, um, Hyper-V uses what's called a hypervisor, which injects itself at a very low level in uh, the system so that it basically treats, it's funny, it treats your host OS as a, a, virtual, as a virtualized environment. Um, in fact, one of the things that people run into that really frustrates them, which we'll come back to, is the fact that you might lose some features of your machine when you install Hyper-V. Let me come back to some more what's hot, because that's kind of a what's not hot for developers. Hmm. Scalable, right? You want to get some figures? They're currently running MSDN and TechNet websites all in Hyper-V. Wow. wow. MSDN, TechNet, all in Hyper-V. Wow. In addition, currently 25% of Microsoft.com is running on Hyper-V. I mean, that's huge when you think about that, yeah. right? There's some amazing stats. Microsoft's publishing white papers and all sorts of good stuff. We'll have to get some links to this stuff. But, I mean, that's really amazing. Um, a couple other changes. They've gone to a Windows-based MMC instead of the web-based interface. And probably the big one for people is Hyper-V only costs you 8 bucks. Huh. Well, so here's the interesting. This is important to be aware of. If you, um, for example, go to your MSDN subscriber downloads developers 
and you want to try out Hyper-V, you have to do a couple of things. You've got to download the right version of Windows. Now, Microsoft, I think, doesn't want to get in trouble with uh, the Justice Department or something. This is my speculation only. And so what they've said is you can buy Windows Server 2008 with or without Hyper-V. The price differential between the with and without is $8, basically. Uh, Interesting. Um, so you can you can buy it. Now, here's the key thing. A lot of people don't understand this. Because Hyper-V has been in beta, they have actually downloaded and installed the wrong version of Windows. You do not want to install the version of Windows Server 2008 that says without Hyper-V, because that means it cannot ever run Hyper-V. Oh, interesting. Not only does it not wow. have it, you can't run it. You always want the one with Hyper-V, and then, as Richard and I've talked about, you want to go download it. Right now what's going to happen, you can download it from Microsoft.com or starting, I think, around the 8th of next week or so, pretty soon, it'll actually show up via Windows Update. Um, and you can add it as a role. So if I hear you correctly, the virtualization code is like at the kernel level? It's that really far down? Yeah, it's, it's that far down. It's a, it's, a, it's a hypervisor that sits very low... Um, between the hardware and the operating system, so it's kernel-level code. It basically treats the host, what you consider, what we always have considered the host operating system in Microsoft speak, right, you know, Windows, Vista, Windows Server 2003, et cetera. That is actually a child partition. It's, it's called what's called the parent partition, and then you can have any number of child partitions, which represent our traditional VMs. So does that but mean the, your entire state can be saved to a file somewhere and uh, restored? On another not, machine? The, not the parent partition, but your child partitions can be. All right. But what's interesting about this, this, this brings up an issue, though, right? One of the things that a lot of people do, like myself, I just got myself a T61P Lenovo, and through the magic that is technology, I have 8 gig of RAM on it and a 320 gigabyte hard drive. Nice laptop. Isn't that great? Just love the power, baby. <laughs> so this machine, um, as a laptop, when I first installed Windows Server 2008 Standard, supports suspend, supports you know, sleep mode, all that good stuff. When you install Hyper-V, they basically disable all that because of the problems it could cause with running VMs. Right. And this is obviously a key point about Hyper-V and why developers have to care but be aware. Hyper-V is primarily today a server technology. Sure. It's meant for high-performance, high-scale in the data center. But as a developer, you've got to care about this. Number one, your apps will start running under Hyper-V. Number two, Hyper-V, if you have the right hardware, will give you better performance for your virtual machines than virtual PC or virtual server, hands down. So, you know, Hyper-V is going to be where a lot of people are moving. But the downside is you have to run a server operating system. This definitely is the what's not hot thing, right? You have to run Windows Server 2008 Standard Edition with Hyper-V. You obviously need um, the right technology, which means 64-bit operating system. So you have to run the 64-bit version. In addition, your hardware has to support... The Intel or AMD embedded virtualization, um, a.k.a. Um, Pacifica for AMD, I forget what it's really called. In addition, your processor has to support the no-execute bit, which is all pretty standard if you're buying anything today, but some of your older hardware. For example, my Monster server I built a couple years ago, I can't run Hyper-V on it because it doesn't have the built-in virtualization. Uh, the processors? The, the processors don't support it. Nope. Oh, uh, Okay. That's so I might be able to upgrade them, but you know, for the price these days, I can buy a new box that's Hyper-V and use this one for virtual servers, so I'm not going to stress on it. But those are things you have to think about. If you meet all those things, then you can run Hyper-V. Now, like I said, though, on a laptop, if you're on a plane, you're going to have to shut down. You can't suspend. Right? You close the lid, it's going to stay on in your bag. <laughs> uh, somebody tells me you learned that one the hard way. Hmm. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> life, goes, life goes on, man. <laughs> it was toasty. Let's just say toasty. Um, the flip side is, you know, Windows Server 2008 is a fantastic operating system, and if you have your MSDN and you're going to be doing development, you know, you get a nice new workstation, uh, which maybe I did some shopping recently, um, with some RAM and some Hyper-V goodness, and it's a development environment of, of, that dreams are made of, because you get all the benefits that we're used to, you know, save state, uh, we have new, uh, um, Hyper-V has what are called snapshots which makes it much easier to do different types of safe state as opposed to the typical undo driver you're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, supports all the goodness you're used to, and this perf just is it's lovely. Um, I'm doing a talk um, on VSTS and doing test labs, and Hyper-V is a core uh, foundation of that talk, and it's a core technology I think a lot of test labs 
that people are going to use in their development environments. So definitely it's, it's the future. Like I said, though, it does have some downsides, right? It's not primarily meant for client execution. So you're going to lose some of your things like sound. Uh, there's no USB support, as we talked about. Um, video, you're going to be limited to basically what you can do through RDP, which isn't always the same as native video. So, right. you know, it's definitely not the moral equivalent to, say, VMware on the client yet. So VMware still has some time on the client stack. But, you know, Microsoft's got to be thinking about what they're going to do with the client now that they've shipped the server. But that's all speculation on my part, let's be very clear. Yeah, okay. So I guess the question here is, that from a developer's point of view, uh, is there stuff I need to do in code specifically to work effectively with Hyper-V-based uh, operating systems? No, absolutely not. As long as you configure your Hyper-V VMs correctly, it'll just be like real hardware. Okay, so it doesn't really matter. I can build on a regular machine. I shouldn't have any trouble installing my app into a Hyper-V-based machine. Now, how no. about running Visual Studio in, in a Hyper-V machine? No problems whatsoever. It runs great. Great idea. And I'll, i got to imagine that's good to keep uh, a clean machine separate. Oh, it's you great know, for betas, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, it goes without saying, great for betas. But, you know, the... You know the problems of downloading and installing software using your email machine is the same as your development machine. I mean, sometimes sometimes you get corrupted. Sometimes things happen. You have to Yeah, repair. yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the old days, I remember my old laptops, I had three or four hard drives I carried. They each had their own boot OS. One was for mail, and one was for demos, and one was for development. Yeah. You're so right. You know, absolutely, guys. You're, you're totally correct, in fact. If you have the right hardware, so you know you have enough RAM, you're basically a modern machine with a good amount of RAM and a fast hard drive. You know, there's really no excuse for polluting your main machine with the detritus that comes with typical development. Especially if you're, you know, lots of people like to download controls and try different bits of stuff off the internet. You know, that's what a virtual machine is great for. Because first of all, if anything happens wrong, just pull the plug on it, undo, it's done. Right. Um, the ability to move between machines, understanding that. Product act, uh, Windows activation can bite you occasionally. But, you know, in general, you know, it's a great lifestyle lead. But the biggest problem I run into with people that don't like virtualization is because they're running crappy hardware. I mean, there's, that's just a fundamental problem. Not enough RAM, slow hard drives, and even, you know, when it comes down to it, slow old processors. Um, that's probably the biggest problem. You need 7,200 RPM drives. You need gobs of RAM. Um, you know, modern dual-core processor. You know, quad-core obviously better, but, you know, even the laptops, you know, get the fast drives. That's a big problem. These laptops often ship with a slower, bigger drives because people want the space because they're download pigs, right? They're MP3s, they're pictures, you know, they're this, this program from the Internet. But you want those fast drives. Right now you can get 320 gigs of 7,200 RPM goodness for your laptop. No excuse. Hey, this is Carl. I just need to take a minute to tell you about the latest offerings from our friends at Telerik. As you probably know, they've recently released their huge pack of web controls built on top of ASP.NET AJAX that'll help you build impossibly fast and interactive applications in no time. But you've just got to check out their Windows Form stuff. It looks just like WPF. How about a carousel component in Windows Forms? How about a super powerful grid view control and 32 other desktop components with dazzling WPF-like features? In reporting, Telerik has this new design surface that simulates graph paper. And it's got so many advanced page layout capabilities, it looks more like graphic design software. So visit www.telerik.com and download a free trial. And make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Um, what about the whole dual spindle thing we used to do all the time in VPC, where you really wanted a separate spindle for your VPC, uh, you know, main volume separate from your boot drive? That's, that, that rule still, still applies, absolutely. You know, that's where you get the, the best performance. You know, obviously the big issues are, number one, how many VMs do you want to run? You know, some people just run one VM occasionally. They'll probably be happy, especially with Hyper-V. Like I said, the performance is really impressive. You really have to try it out um, and compare your some of your big VMs on... Virtual PC, virtual PC and virtual server, and now run it on Hyper-V. Um, that said, I still do it. I Today, my big thing I carry is I carry an external 10,000 RPM uh, Western Digital Raptor drive yeah. that I run over eSATA, and those two together, just it's, it's amazing. People are just freaked out that when I, I show them I'm running a virtual machine. And I run an entire VSTS installation with the server, SQL server, client tools, everything. Um, so that'll give you the best perf. But, you know, if, even with the laptop, Use the extra drive bay, 
that would be probably good for, you know, 50% of the people out there. When you're running servers, you know, that's where it gets where the extra drive really is going to help. Uh, and what about using, like, uh, high-speed USB keys as one of the volumes? You know, that's an interesting thing. You know, people talk about high-speed USB keys. I haven't done the test, but you do run into some, I would, I would think you'd run into some I.O. performance issues. So that's definitely something I need to test. Different people have tried that. The other thing you run into is the mean time between failure. I, you know, those keys have a limited number of um, I.O.s that you can put on them. Right. So, you know, I'm not sure that's the best thing. I think most people would find that it's not as effective as, uh, modern drives. Now, the hot topic that's coming up, though, that's really, you know, once the price comes down, is solid-state drives. You know, yeah, of course. We're starting the to, SSDs. SSDs, absolutely. We're starting to see, you know, Raptor-level performance out of those puppies. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's just right now, they're just so bloody expensive. If you want yeah, the fast right. ones, I think, uh, was I mean, one of the magazines had the, the latest on them. And if you want 64 gigs of high performance in a laptop-sized drive, it would cost you three grand. Ouch. I mean, yeah, you can buy a whole new machine for that, right? Forget it. You know, buy yeah, the buy a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> for now, the solid state right now, I think, is is a fantasy as far as you know, getting that for day to day use. But they're coming down, and that's obviously one of the big topics in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, as far as memory sales and things are going to solid state. I think it's just a matter. Personally, I just think it's a matter of um, supply and demand. Not not really on the supply side, but on the demand side. Like people want this so bad, and and also. Hard drive manufacturers know that their days are numbered in selling in selling uh, magnetic drives once the price of these things goes down. So it's a oh, it, that, it's a big changer. I mean, it's a that's a disruptive technology right there. Well, yeah. and you know the, the the squeeze play, of course, is the drives have to get bigger and bigger to stay ahead of this. They're never going to be faster than the SSDs are. So it's a, it's an interest. But the other thing is, people starting to appreciate the idea that this is enough space. But and this is maybe a little off topic. I don't know. We're all toy geeks here. But if you notice that people are now so sensitive to the fact that prices are going to fall quickly that they just don't buy it. They just wait. Right. And now prices aren't falling because nobody's buying. Right. Oh, that's that's totally true. The for example, the person the MVP I helped with her uh, her talk, she was talking about when to buy her next machine and she was saying, "Well, I'll just wait another few months." And I, I replied, I said, "Well, you, you wait forever, right? It's always going to get cheaper in theory, but how much time do you give up waiting to get that stuff? You know, buy now, enjoy and get the best out of it." I always tell people, "Spend what you can afford, but get the most you can get and use it. That'll pay for itself." Right. Time saved, baby. Yeah, there's an interesting, you know, time uh cost of time uh, issue there to try and balance off. Well, I think you and I have spent a lot of time, Richard, over the years justifying our hardware expenses. <laughs> well, that's got more to do with short attention span. I must <laughs> buy now because tomorrow I will forget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Boys and their toys. Simple things, man. Simple, simple things. Okay, so other angle on this. I mean, as a developer, I don't have to worry about building code specifically to work with it. So uh, what's my big advantage of working in virtualization? Is it really for testing? Uh, uh, definitely the, the test matrix is huge, right? The ability to test multiple operating systems and now 32-bit versus 64-bit. You mentioned that reader who uh, wrote in about having a 64-bit problem. Yes. To be able to try different OSs in different scenarios is, is really just a core developer benefit because, you know, if you're not testing on multiple OSs, you're not really testing um, fundamentally. If you're delivering software, I mean, it's rare that anybody gets a we deploy on one piece of hardware with one OS, with one set of RAM and all this stuff. You need to test. And obviously, if you're doing commercial software for, you know, consumers in particular is the extreme, you know, you really got to try a bunch of different scenarios. And virtualization can really, really help with that. I got Yeah, I got to imagine that's the big thing. It's just, I, I mean, I remember the old days where they weren't performant at all, but we were having to build software that supported, you know, four flavors of Windows, and I didn't want to run a Windows 95, a Windows 98, a Windows 98 SE, you know, all these different versions. So being able to fire up the old, old VMware just to host each of those tasks, it made a huge difference. Oh, you know, it's so true. And just even like the work I do, we write um, hands-on labs for Microsoft. And the ability to have this point in time where you can test out the lab and then reset it back and know you have a clean environment, the, the time you save there is huge. Even with technologies like, you know, Cronus TrueImage and, and Ghost, et cetera. The virtualization with pre-built VHDs and the ability to, you know, set snapshots is huge as far as a win in time 
yep. and the ability to try different scenarios. I mean, that's the great thing you can, you know, as we mentioned, test betas, test new service packs, all in a very safe sandbox environment. It's just, you know, virtualization is the, one of the hottest topics over the next, you know, five to ten years. It's certainly taken the pain out of testing. And even Microsoft now, if you're part of those programs, will ship you VMs of everything already installed. So you just have to fire it up and take it out for a spin. Oh, exactly. You know, we build, uh, the, I build the VSTS VPC, and that's always a huge thing with the MVPs, the field, uh, Microsoft field, as well as customers, because they can try it out without having to install an entire server environment. And let's be honest, as we build this, these new rich service-orientated, rich in-tier applications, getting these things installed can take forever. You just want to try it out. Now you just download this thing yeah, you know, with fast pipes. In a few hours, you've got an entire self-contained environment that you can party on. It's great. Hey, let's talk about hosting ASP.NET sites with, with Hyper-V. And um, I, I guess probably the biggest the the biggest thing uh, benefit that you get there is the ability to bring machines up and down without having to go through the pain of reconfiguring new servers and installing the latest service packs and all that stuff. It, do you have one of the things I like about VMware is the ability to start with an existing image, you know, that has all the service packs and everything already installed and just use that as a starting point for a new machine but it uses those same files instead of making copies of the new files. Um, do you know, does, does uh, Hyper-V have that feature? Yeah, Microsoft has always supported this for their products um, through what's called differencing drives. Differencing. So you can create a, a base operating system with a, a configuration that's known and good, and then you can layer multiple diff drives on it and try different scenarios, even create, as you mentioned, multiple runtime environments. Yeah. Um, so you can definitely do that today. You can do it with Hyper-V virtual server and virtual PC. The biggest thing to watch out for is the way diff drives work today is they can tend to grow and outgrow the original base drive because they're kind of storing a history log. Um, mm. So one of the things you can do is you can always merge them back with the parent and create a copy that way. Um, but oh, definitely, cool. you know, but diff drives are definitely really good for you know trying different scenarios or running things over a short period of time. You wouldn't want to run a diff drive for six months on end because the growth would probably be astronomical. Well, I'm, I'm um, thinking of the scenario where you've got. Um Let's say you've just got a lot of machines that you need to spin up for different reasons, and you want to, you don't want to have to go through the whole pain of installing all the service packs and blah, 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 and all that every time. So if you can, – can you, you – and it sounds like you answered the question, but uh, it sounds like you can do this. And, yeah, and my can- thinking is that if I need to go back to the original base image and update that, I can do that, and will those changes be reflected – going forward in the diff no, drive. No, that's, that's a big thing to watch out for. All right. With, with diff drives built on top of a base VHD, you can't modify the parent. Okay. So that's why you don't want to use diff drives for long-term use, but definitely for, as you said, you want to spin up a test environment for a week or two, that's a good usage of I diff see. drives. So I do see. you just throw away the VHD at the end? There's no well, way to update that VHD? Well, there's two ways to do it, right? The one thing is, say you spend a week with it, say you've got five VMs where you have one base and five diff drives, and you decide you want to keep it, but you know you're going to keep it running, say, in production, right, for whatever right. reason. The thing you would do is you would basically merge the diff drives one at a time into a new copy, and you would end up with five VMs. Um, the good news, depending on how long you've been running the diff drive, you might only grow the parent by a small 10%, you know, 20% percentage uh, size difference. Right. So it's not like you necessarily would chew up, you know, you know, twice as much disk space per virtual machine. But that's the way you would have to do it. You'd have to merge them back. And then you could, if you wanted to, with those merge copies, create diffs on top of them and try different scenarios. But diff drives have to be used effectively. Otherwise, the, the way they chew up disk space, uh, unfortunately, is a downside. Um, that said, they keep, they keep freaking me out on things that they're able to do now, right? We're looking at... Um, you know, the ability to do offline updates of your VMs. Right now, that's not officially supported. That's coming. Hmm. Um, they have a solution accelerator they're working on on how to do that. So those type of things are really going to make it easier to have multiple VMs. And I can see them finding a way to support. Uh, and the key word is support, right? Microsoft, everything they do with virtualization, when they say they support it, that means if there's a problem, they will go to the mat and try and fix it. Um, you know, they want to make sure that while there are voodoo tricks people have done and tried things, you can find things in the dark corners of the Internet. Mm. Um, you know, hopefully in the future we'll be able to have a supported mechanism to say, I want to update the base and not have it break my, my guess. 
but obviously there's a lot of smart wizardry that has to go on that's beyond my brain power. Yeah, that would be magic as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know the other scenario I was thinking about, and uh, our fellow RD Joe Homnick was talking about this, was using USB drives as the read volume for a VHD and then using the diff drive as the write, which is the actual hard drive, Interesting. for training. So he was able to go into somebody else's machine and basically provide this training environment on their machine and then take it with him when he takes the USB key away. Yep. So I, I'm protecting my licensing model. I'm not copying anything onto your machine except possibly VPC, which we know is free. And you're getting the advantage of the fast hard drive for all the writes, which is what matters. But the OS, the actual VHD, lives on these. And he's got these big 32 gigabyte USB keys for, for doing that. Yeah, that's definitely another, you know, um, operational thing. And that's why I think people keep discovering, you know, new ways to use virtualization to their benefit. You know, training is a huge benefit. When I teach my VSTS class, we provide the self-contained virtual machine that everybody gets to work in their isolated environment. They get to try everything out without hosing their host machine, without affecting the lab environment. Um, it's, it's a great way to live. Well, and it also, now I'm putting, sort of putting my IT hat on here. When I want to practice an upgrade, to be able to snap a copy of a machine as a VHD and then just keep running the installs and the upgrades and make sure the new version works correctly till I've got it nailed. Yeah, it's it's really a huge thing. I mean, as as we point out, Hyper-V is significant to developers. For the IT pros running the data center, um, this is just a technology that they're just going gaga for. Um, you know, the performance, the flexibility. Um, in particular, it, when you add in uh, Microsoft's management tool, System Center Virtual Machine Monitor, uh, Manager. You have the ability to, you know, move VMs around the network, have libraries of VMs, spin them up, spin them down. You know, especially when people, you know, come with requests, we need a new server to do this. To be able to just, you know, click a couple, you know, website items or run some kind of snap in and just check some boxes and say, okay, there's your new machine. It'll be ready in an hour as we copy the files from our fast SAN. Um, you know, that's just amazing stuff. Although it does lead to virtual machine sprawl. <laughs> oh, exactly. And that's, I think, that's the hot pay uh, topic right now, because, you know, Microsoft has basically drawn the line in the sand, as well as Zen and some of the other vendors, you know, that virtualization is basically going to be free, and that's where VMware is going to really have to work out their model. Mm. Um, but even Microsoft recognizes this sprawl of VMs, and so does VMware, and so what they're both are pushing are their infrastructure and management tools. So Microsoft has System Center Virtual Machine uh, Manager. The current version is out. It supports virtual server. The beta for the next release is available now. It works with Hyper-V RTM. And what's significant about Microsoft's new version is not only does it manage uh, Virtual Server and Hyper-V, but it manages ESX server installations. Wow. Um, so they're, they're saying, look, you got virtualization, we'll help you manage it. This and is the, Embrace and Extend wow. in action. That's awesome. You got man. it. Now, the thing that's interesting is System Center, though, costs money. There's right. a work group edition for five hosts that's listed retail at $4.99 right now. But the Enterprise Edition, um, you have to buy it in conjunction with other System Center products. That's when it gets into weird licensing that I just don't get into. Um, and, of course, VMware, that's how they made their money. ESX server you know, is, is, is hugely expensive relative to what Hyper-V is when you look at the, the price point that VMware tends to charge. Now, granted, I tend to get this secondhand from companies that have bought it because of all VMware's different uh, rules and license agreements and everything else. But ESX server is not cheap, and neither is their VMware infrastructure, which is what they promote. Uh, so we're going to see, you know, a lot of um, uh, what should we say, uh, sparring going on between vendors in this space over the next couple of years, also. Because you're right. I mean, I've got terabytes of virtual machines that I have to manage, both for myself, my customers, and for Microsoft. And it gets, you know, it's difficult. What did I last do to this VM? You know, did I when did I last do Windows Update? You kind of try and look at the date, timestamp, but if you copy the file, you kind of spin it up and then forget. I mean. It's a big deal, and I see we're going to see a lot of stuff for everybody because even a person running their home desktop is going to have a few VMs. I mean, look at what Apple's done with, with OS X and the Intel platform. Yeah. You know, they promote boot camp, but they also, you know, Parallels and VMware have sold exceedingly well. Parallels claims over a million people are using their product to run virtual machines. So, you know, we're going to see it more on Windows, too, and the fact of the matter is, after a while, you need some help keeping track of that stuff. It, it is, yeah, I can see on an individual's machine, and I really do get a sense of this, in the next couple of years, it is going to be totally normal for you to run your desktop machine with two or three environments. 
and you'll be able to manage that. But as soon as you start dealing with a server, it's it's easily going to be a dozen of them, and you're going to need tools to take care of that. Well, and, you know, that brings up a good point, Richard. You talk about servers, right? One of the things that a lot of small and medium businesses have done, you're right, let's exclude the enterprises, right? But a lot of small and medium businesses have done is they've dealt with the issue of cost and servers by trying to run as much as possible on one or two boxes. With virtualization, I can buy one or two monster boxes, right, so I can have some redundancy and some failover. But, but then I can partition my servers into different workloads. I can have a dedicated SQL Server virtual machine. I can dedicate a VM for Exchange. I can tweak the RAM that I give it. I can tweak the processors I give it. And I can even tweak the amount of processors utilization it gets to have. So, number one, I'm going to make much better use of my hardware. Number two, I'm going to have a much more flexible management model in the sense that I don't have to worry about an upgrade to my SQL Server breaking my website or upgrading my Exchange Server breaking my SQL Server. I mean, it's, it's huge in so many different ways, and it's, it's really good for a lot of people. Hardware vendors, obviously Microsoft for, from an OS perspective, but just the flexibility you get is just significant. And just that ability to say, hey, this is one VM that's eating up all my resources. Let's put it over another piece of hardware. And it's trivial to do that, just yeah. to ship it over to another piece of machinery and off, re- off it goes. I'm rapidly evolving my personal rack at home because I'm a nut to two big machines so that I can fail between them. And that's it. No, that, that really is it. And, you know, Microsoft with Hyper-V out of the box supports what's called quick migration, where they basically take the VM down for a short, you know, a few second period. In fact, you know, they support it with a different kind of SAN and, um, you know, hard drive configurations. Uh, VMware has the edge today in that they have what's called live migration, which will move a running VM in a properly configured host environment. Um, definitely not cheap hardware. It's probably something you're not going to build off the shelf. But both of those technologies, quick and live migration, are huge when you think about the ability to reposition resources, be able to take physical servers down, and still keep your systems up and running. Um, and the ability to think about no one, disaster recovery. I can back up entire servers to these large drives, right? I mean, you walk into Best Buy for 200 bucks, you're walking out with a terabyte. Yeah. Right? Pop your VMs on, take them to, down to the local bank, there's your disaster recovery. Now, grab that brings up security, though, making sure people don't walk off with your data center. Um, but definitely, there's lots of, of, of major features that virtualization brings that I think is just changing the way we do computing. So what do you think is, I mean, I, I don't want you to divulge any secrets here, but what do you think is the next, uh, the next phase in virtualization for Microsoft, for VM? Well, I think the, the big thing that's not really secret is Microsoft acquired a company that has a product called SoftGrid. And oh, yes. the, next big, the next big thing we're seeing is application virtualization. So even within a host machine and in theory inside a virtual machine, I can virtualize my applications so that they don't damage each other, um, which is critical. For example, you know, one of the canonical problems we have as developers is running multiple versions of our dev environment, you know, VS 2003, 2005, and 2008. With application virtualization, you really can reduce the conflict between similar programs or even programs that just don't play well together. Um, so I think we're going to see lots more in application virtualization is going to come out. But, you know, I'm always amazed at what these guys think of it to do. And like I said, unfortunately, the Microsoft team is very um, hush-hush about what they're doing. You know, the big thing we're seeing is from VMware, for example, is they're pushing experimental support for uh, DirectX 3D graphics and stuff inside the VM. So they're really trying to attack that niche, as Richard brought up about, wanting to run Aero Glass in a VM. Well, VMware is attacking that. So I think we're going to see richer hardware support from all the vendors to where basically you won't be able to tell the difference between running a VM and running a real machine. I think that's the long-term changes, along with all these things like offline updates, the magical I can update, a have a parent drive that sh- is shared between multiple children, mm. you know, there's just these smart people do just some voodoo things to me that I just I just blows my mind. Yeah. Like I'm not worried. Well, just considering the idea of irrespective of how much it costs, I am going to take a running exchange server and move it from one computer to another and it never stops running. Just consider how unlikely that is. Mm. It's insane. It it is. It is absolutely insane. That is insane. And and even more so for SQL Server. Do you know the other class of apps uh, in general that I think virtualization is really helping are the lost apps, the old apps. Like I've got that one application we bought 10 years ago on NT4 
that three guys are still using. There's been no upgrade path for it, no replacement for it. But because it's on NT4, like I just can't move it to another machine. I don't think I could actually get it to run again anywhere else. I'm afraid of it. To be able to suck that into a virtual machine with the whole P to V trick. Yeah, you know, physical to virtual is a big thing to be able to take your environment um, out of your real thing. Understanding footnote for people who try this, you got to watch out for uh, vendor-tied OSs. For example, a lot of your client OSs are tied to the OEM platform, but ignoring Licensing that issue, right, to, to be able to take something from an old NT4 environment into a VM to keep it running is great. The downside is it does keep people running things longer than maybe they should because NT4 is completely out of support. Yeah, right. You run into a problem, you're completely hosed. But the fact of the matter is, you can definitely run it. And that's the thing to watch out for. You know, Microsoft has a what they call their short list of we support it, which means we go to the mat to make things work. What will run inside it? Oh my God, you can get just about anything to run inside it. Now, I think the, the level la- of how well it runs varies, right? Because you have this issue with additions, aka on um, Hyper-V, they're called ICS components or integration uh, component services uh, that make you get all the nice mouse support, keyboard support, etc. But if you can live without some of that stuff just so you can run something an hour a day, for example, no, it's a godsend. Now, Brian, you when you were on the show before, you mentioned how to do the physical to virtual migration. Can can we recap that? Can you tell us again, well, basically how so it works? The the mechanism I've used. So let's let's back up. The the key thing to understand when you do a P to V migration is you have to deal with hardware differences, right? In the virtualization space, regardless of vendor, um, what they typically do today on the Intel platform is they virtualize the processor, which means the guest sees the native processor on the host. For example, right now I'm running on my new machine. And when I pop up a virtual server VM and I ask it, well, what are you running? It says it's a 2.66 gigahertz Intel Xeon. Well, the model number it puts up is an E5430. That's actually a quad-core processor. It sees it as a single-core processor. All right, okay. if I go to my Hyper-V box and do the same thing, it's going to see the host that's running um, my laptop, which, in fact, is, you know, a 2.6 gigahertz Penron or uh, Penran, I don't know how to say it, uh, you know, mobile processor. Okay, so it sees the real processor. Everything else, at least on the Microsoft stack, because I'm not an expert on VMware, but on the Microsoft stack, everything else is an emulated driver. So you always see the same type of video card. Mm. You see the same type of network card. Okay, well, generally, those things aren't going to match. Like the video card is an old S3 video card if you're using virtual PC or virtual server. Who runs that anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm running an NVIDIA video card in my desktop as well as on my laptop. Right. So what happens is you're going to have the typical detect hardware changes. So there's different ways to do this. From a simple perspective, ignoring the high-end products, because there's dedicated products to do this, but for the average developer who just wants to try it out, I like a Cronus TrueImage. Yeah. They have their TrueImage product, plus they have this thing called uh, Universal Restore. And what will happen with Universal Restore is they will help fix up your device drivers. In particular, they take care of the HAL issues, um, the hardware abstraction layers that's core to Windows, wow. and fix it up when you restore it in. So you basically you know, image the machine, you take the restore, you boot up the Acronis image inside the virtual machine and use the true restore, and they will fix things up for you. So you, pretty awesome wow, in my so experience. you back up the physical machine with Acronis true image, you restore that into the virtual machine with with this uh, magic button and things and it, and it fixes up all those drivers. Yep. Jeez. So the things you got to watch out for is you want to make create VHDs, you know, your virtual hard drives that are that match the physical size of the drives you're right, migrating. Right, right. For time, you're going to want to make them fixed because that'll make the restore faster. Right. They take a while to allocate. The thing to watch out for, because uh, I did this once before, because I had a, a ThinkPad that I've been running, believe it or not, for like four years. I had a drive that was the original OS that. Lenovo gave me, or IBM at the time, and I didn't want to lose it, but I was going to say, you know, I've had enough of the issues, but I need to keep some stuff that's on it. And so I did it, and it worked with one problem, though. Because of the way the OS is tied to the ThinkPad, it's an OEM version, it wouldn't really upgrade. Plus, you went into, turns out, some licensing issues with Microsoft, right? right? So, licensing. Got to be careful so, with that. Yeah. So the bottom line is, it'll work, but you might run into those issues. So be careful when you're doing it from you know, particularly, you know, real vendors, you know, IBM, HP, et cetera. But what a lot of people do is they build their own boxes. They use retail media. That stuff works great. Just make sure you're licensed correctly and use true image. It's mm. awesome. I, this particular trick saved my bacon with an old machine whose motherboard failed. And we weren't going to be able to get a replacement. 
and taking that drive and pulling it into another computer using a Cronus to image it and then drop it into uh, a VM to bring it back to life just was the only way to get to the app. Wow, that's amazing. No, it, it really, when you think about it, it is absolutely amazing. You know, it, it, I mean, like I said, you, you think about what we're talking about today and you, let's just go back five years and you go back 10 years and it's like, oh my God. Right. I remember all the machines I had to have to try things out. And now, while I still have a lot of hardware, the amount of things I can test and run and, and build is just phenomenal. I can build entire domains, even on my laptop now with 8 gigs of RAM. Right. I can bring up an entire domain, domain controller, web servers, database server, TFS, and try different scenarios and really you know, know how something works and how it's going to work in production. Hmm. Now, this application virtualization concept, the whole software thing, uh, we did a show on this on Run As Radio, actually. It's a whole different cat because now we're not talking about running multiple separate OSs, but basically, you know, virtualized OS space for each app so they don't see each other, but it's all one OS. It's sort of like processes on steroids, if you think about it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's processes, you know, times 20, times 100, uh, especially when done right, right, Richard? When you think about your know, registry isolation. That's the that's the thing is the you know, guys not overriding e- each other's pieces of the registry and all that sort of crap that just makes you crazy to try to get your app running goes away. Yeah, completely. Now it's 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 really compelling technology. Unfortunately, that's one thing I've not been able to spend a lot of time with just because that's the other thing is how do we keep up? There's so much going on right now in our yeah. space as developers, and let alone an IT pro out there. So it's just hard. And so at least I know virtualization is just saving my bacon left and right. Well, uh, just about come to the end of the show, Brian. Is there any last-minute uh, things you want to mention? Shout-outs? Um, well, just, you know, I'll be out on the road in uh, the summer and fall. I'll be in South Africa speaking at TechEd, and I'm going to be doing a talk on virtualization with test labs plus VSTS. And uh, actually, one of the big things that's coming up, if you remember our very first time I was considering uh, writing a book on virtualization, uh, primarily for developers and, and, you know, basically in everyone's guide, you know, anybody who's busy but just wants to know enough. And, of course, you get busy, your lifestyle's rough, you know, I'm making a real living, and books aren't exactly a way to make a living these days. Yeah. But, unfortunately, the gauntlet has been thrown down, and uh, Rocky Lotka, back in May, we were together at VS Live, and he basically uh, challenged me to get the, the book he wants to read out, which is basically, you know, a busy person's guide to virtualization. Wow. So just tell me the things I need to know and, and just make my life better. Like, for example, there's a lot of issues if you want to move your existing virtual machines from virtual PC or virtual server to Hyper-V. The big issue is if you migrate it up, and it's fairly straightforward what you have to do, but there's a steps you have to follow. So you've got to do A, B, C, D, E. And then once you've got to run it in Hyper-V, guess what happens? You can't bring it back to virtual server virtual PC. Because one-way goes, trip. It's one-way because once you go to Hyper-V and you install the integration components to get the best perf and to get all the nice features, it modifies the how to what's called an APIC how. And guess what? You can't go back. How being hardware abstraction layer. That's correct. And so that's the thing people have to be aware of because, you know, for example, I still have lots of machines that aren't running Hyper-V and can't. The other thing is there's a price issue, right? I'm not going to be able to run Windows Server 2000 on all my OSs. So that's what people have to be aware of. So Rocky said, look, just write the book that I want to read. And so basically <laughs> it, it was that. And then Rocky he threw down the gauntlet by saying, by the way, if you even ship this book, I'll throw you a party. You know, everybody loves the party. So I'll Rocky, go to that party. I want this book too. Yeah, me well, too. So right now I've got a URL up um, at mcwtech.com slash vmbook. Um, it's going to have the, well, it has the background of why I'm doing this now more than anything because of Rocky, as well as <laughs> the, the initial outline of basically what kind of book it's going to be. It's kind of like probably the closest book I've seen is the O'Reilly Hack series, which is a lot of short topics. So I'm going to have a lot of what is virtualization? Very short to the point. How do I? Lots of those. How do I upgrade a virtual PC VM to Hyper-V? You know, right. Give me the facts. Don't, you know, yeah, technical detail is great, but I've got a job to do. I don't want to be a virtualization expert. Just get me going and save my bacon. Hey, so what, uh, what amazing tools did you use to come up with that brilliant website at mcwtech.com slash vmbook? Because it's so rich. I just, well, I'm just you know, curious. I'm working on that, but right now, I'm just, <laughs> Visual Notepad is what I'm using, brother. <laughs> because right now, I don't want to waste any time that could be taken up by writing, right? Because it's all right. about getting the book out. <laughs> so, and I'll probably post some sample items up there. 
before I get going. Right now, I don't have a publisher because, well, to be honest, every time I talk to a publisher, I get myself into trouble by not writing the book. So this time, we're going to write the book first. Good. Good for you. And then go shop it. I'll self-publish it or shop it. We'll see. But the bottom line is, I got to do it for Rocky because, damn it, I want a party. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I want to be invited to that one. Oh, absolutely. All, all the known troublemakers will be invited. Sounds good. Brian, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. It was great. Absolutely fun. Let's do it again soon, not in two years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And until then, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.